0: Well, we're here at uh, the city of David, and uh, we were making our way down through uh, the city, and we made a turn, and there came an entrance to Hezekiah's tunnels, which would have been how that uh, water would have been transported from uh, the spring of Gihon up to uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so when Lena saw that, she immediately uh, took a turn, and into the tunnel she went and uh, said, I'll see you in about 40 minutes. And so... As I've been walking down um, the side of the mountain, I've just been reflecting on this trip and this amazing opportunity that uh, we've been blessed with. And um, as I stand here, I can't help but let you know how much I appreciate you and am so grateful for uh, the opportunity we've had to be here. As I look back over my shoulder, this is what I saw. That is the southeast corner of the walls around the current city of Jerusalem, old city, and head down below that would be a better picture that we've had uh, since we've been here at the Kidron Valley. As you make your way up that hill, then you go to, off in the distance, you might be able to see uh, golden dome. That's the Russian Orthodox Church that's been built there and Somewhere in that vicinity would have been Gethsemane and the location of Jesus' arrest. We've been down in that Kidron Valley after leaving um, the upper room mm-hmm. and traveling down into the Kidron Valley, walking what then would have been amongst the olive trees that uh, mm-hmm. would have been found there. Now it's a Jewish cemetery. But as he's walking through there, he would have spoken some very very important words. And I thought I would share those words with you this morning. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Well, good morning, Oak Ridge Baptist Church. It is good to see you this morning. Wow. Wow. I, uh, I, went into, uh, I went into one of our ABF classes this morning, and uh, I learned that there's a betting pool as to whether or not I would still have the goatee when I got back this morning. Uh, if you won that bet, then I expect you to pay your tithe on your earnings this morning. Uh, you know, uh, recently many people have asked our kiddos or, uh, or uh, some of the staff, you know, Pastor and Miss Lena got back a couple of weeks ago, why have they not been back at Church and so uh, yesterday actually ended our sabbatical on April the first. I'm not sure if that was a joke or not, but that's when uh, that's when it ended. Uh, the first part of the trip was uh, our trip to the Holy Land, and that was to be kind of our continuing education. Uh, and then we were going to come back for a few days, and then we were going on kind of the R&R, the relaxation trip. Uh, but starting in October, Lena started having some uh, medical issues, and uh, she began to treat uh, with the topical chemotherapy, uh, uh, some cancer that had developed on her lip. And then by the end of the year, uh, she had to have some female surgeries around uh, December the 28th. And... Uh, During all that process of going through all those testings and things, uh, we found that she had a large uh, mass in uh, one of her breasts. And so we got back on a Tuesday, and two days later on Thursday, uh, Lena had pretty radical breast uh, surgery uh, to take care of all those issues. Uh, Praise the Lord. Uh, All of the pathology reports have returned negative, and so there's not any cancer with any of those things. Um, Yeah. So we are very grateful for that, but rather than taking the trip, it's been my privilege to be at home with her and to be able to nurse her and to help her uh, back to health. Uh, Every day is kind of different, and so uh, on Wednesday, we'll go back to the doctor and kind of get our next stage of those kind of things. So even though we're back, if you come by the office and I'm not here, something's going on, uh, we're going to continue uh, to walk through that. So continue to pray for her uh, and lift her up as we continue that healing process. Also, before uh, we left, uh, there were some other questions that were asked of me personally. Uh, And one of those questions was, uh, you know, we can't wait for when you get back from your sabbatical to find out... What's that one thing? What's going to be that greatest thing that's going to have the biggest impact on you while that you're over there? We want to hear all about that. And so when that question would ask, I, I, when it would be asked of me, I would, I would kind of think through that and I'd go, one thing. What, what will be the one? I said, there's no way in the world that there's just going to be one thing. But I was absolutely wrong. There was one thing that had the greatest impact on me personally while we were there. And that one thing is summarized in this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19. He saw the city and wept over it. As you know, today is... Palm Sunday. And so uh, the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19, gives us a great depiction of what all was going on that day. If you will, take your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 and we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. If you're visiting with us today, we hope that you've brought your Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God that, as the book of uh, 2 Timothy tells us, it's profitable for us to study. Uh, It's profitable for corrections and instructions in righteousness. It helps us uh, understand what we ought to be doing when it comes to our faith in practice. And so we concentrate on what the Bible has to say. Uh, so I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the focal passage. We'll put the ancillary passages uh, up on the scripture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 and ver, excuse me, Luke 19 in Romans chapter 10. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're early on on Palm Sunday. We find that Jesus and His disciples are on the east side of Jerusalem. And that's very important for us to pay attention to. Uh, I, I think one of the, one of the real eye-openers for me as we were on this trip was understanding the geography and the geopolitical connections that Israel and Jordan and Egypt and even Rome, how these things all fit together and how when you understand that, it literally makes the scriptures tie together like you just cannot imagine. So now when I read through the Bible and I begin to see directions, it brings me a whole different perspective of what the Bible's trying to say. And in this passage of Scripture, we understand geographically that Jesus is coming from the east. And that is a key thing to understand as we're here at Palm Sunday. And on the east side of Jerusalem, as they're making their way toward the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops and he shares a parable with his disciples. The parable that he shares that day is the parable of the mina. That parable goes something like this. That there was a nobleman that had a lot of land and a lot of slaves working for him. And he was going to go away on a far journey. Uh, And he calls ten of his slaves to him. And he gives each one of them a mina. Now, sixty mina equal one talent. And that should ring a bell. When we go to the book of Matthew, we remember the parable of the talents. So this is a different parable, but it has some of the same connotation. Jesus calls 10 of his slaves and he gives each, excuse me, the the nobleman calls uh, 10 of his slaves and he gives each one of them one mina. And he says, I'm about to go away on a far journey and I want you to invest this mina so that I have a return on my investment when I get back. He goes away, he's gone on his journey, he comes back and he sets up interviews with his 10 slaves and the first two interviews go really well. The two slaves come in and they're like, well, what'd you do with my, my money? And he said, well, I invested it. I, I made a good earning on your investment portfolio. And the nobleman's very pleased. The third slave comes in. And he said, hey, what'd you do with the mina? And he said, well, I was so fearful of messing up. I was so fearful of, of not doing right by your mina that I just put it in a handkerchief and I wrapped it up and I just held on to it. And now we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19 and verse 23. And this is the nobleman's response to the third slave. He says, then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he, the landowner, said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. And then the nobleman replies, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Now, I'm not going to explain or get into this parable this morning. But if you will track with me today, if you will take a journey with me today on what I'm about to share, you're going to see how profound this parable was to be spoken on Palm Sunday as Jesus is making his entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus shares this parable. After sharing this parable, he continues moving toward the east side of Jerusalem, toward the Mount of Olives. As they near the town of Bethany, Jesus sends two of his disciples on an errand, and he tells them, I want you to go into town, and I want you to find a donkey colt. I want you to find a donkey that's a colt that's never been ridden, that's never had anyone on its back. And I want you to bring that colt to me. Those two disciples, they run off on the errand. Jesus and the others, they continue moving toward the east side of Jerusalem. Lane and I had the privilege on our sabbatical to to look up at and to look down from uh, this location that Jesus and his disciples are heading toward. We had this privilege to be able to look at this biblically important place called the Mount of Olives. The pictures that I'm going to show you today and, and next week and the coming weeks are pictures that we actually had the privilege to be able to take. Are those that we had the privilege to be able to see with our very own eyes. We took this picture right here one morning standing near the east wall of Jerusalem. So we're standing on the east wall of Jerusalem, looking down into the Kidron Valley, up the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and there at the top would be the place that Jesus and the disciples were coming to in our passage of scripture this morning. If you notice right over here on the left, there's a little dark blob. Uh, That's actually a man. And I showed this picture to give you kind of reference to the size of this mountain that we're looking at. And what that man is doing is he's standing in the midst of a Jewish cemetery. The west side of the Mount of Olives is now a massive cemetery. And just like sometimes we go to a cemetery cemetery to pay our respects, obviously that's what this man has done. Scripture teaches us something very important from this picture. Scripture teaches us that when the Messiah returns his feet will stand on top of this very mountain. It will stand on the top of the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah foretells about what's going to happen in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14 when he says, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. The reason that is a cemetery is because Jewish people want to be buried on the western slope of the Mount of Olives because when the Messiah returns, they want to be the first ones that rise up to meet him when he's coming from the east To enter into Jerusalem. Now back to the story. The disciples go away. They fetch the colt. They catch up with Jesus near the top. Near the peak of the Mount of Olives. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 35. It says that they. Look in your Bibles. It says they. Talking about the disciples that went on the errand. They brought it, the colt, to Jesus. And they threw their coats on the colt. And put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory In the highest. I cannot tell you how many times I've read that passage of scripture, and today those words jump off the page and slap me in the face right now. I can see this playing out. I've been there, I know exactly how this story is unfolding in front of us. This is the picture that we took standing on top now of the Mount of Olives. The previous picture, we would have been down by the east wall, looking up the western slope, and now we're standing on top, looking back down. Relatively speaking, this possibly would be the location where Jesus sat on the donkey colt, looking over Jerusalem. Rather than seeing the Dome of the Rock, which is behind us there, Jesus would have seen Herod's temple. Herod's temple would have been the temple that had been rebuilt and was torn down in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. And if you remember last week when I did the welcome, I showed you Titus's arch entering into Rome and how that there was a picture of him in his chariot with the golden candlestick that was on the back of that. Jesus would not have seen the dome on the rock. He would have seen Herod's temple. And sitting on that donkey, looking at a panoramic somewhat like this, The Bible says in Luke 19, 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city of Jerusalem because John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 11, it says, He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Remember, today Jews want to be buried on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Because they've read Zechariah chapter 14. They understand when the Messiah comes back and places his feet on the mountain, they want to be the first to be resurrected and to see him face to face. But they missed something. First before Zechariah 14, Jesus the Messiah was on top of the Mount of Olives. He descended from that location into Jerusalem was crucified, was buried, rose again the third day. He walked on this earth for 40 days and then he ascended back to the Mount of Olives and it was there that he ascended into heaven and will once again after his second return. That is when Zechariah 14 will transpire and he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives. In other words... All of these that are buried on the side of that hill will not rise to meet Jesus on his second return, because they never recognize Jesus upon his first coming. They don't understand Zachariah's prophecy. They did not recognize the fact that when Jesus mounted that donkey colt that we just read about here in Luke chapter 19. That he was fulfilling not Zechariah 14, but Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even a colt the foal of a donkey. Instead of recognizing that this was Jesus the Messiah fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, instead, the Bible tells us here in Luke chapter 19 and verse 39, instead of recognizing who he was, the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your students. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Pastor Galen, what do you think will be the greatest impact of your trip? The greatest impact was this. They did not recognize him that first Palm Sunday. And they do not recognize him today. Today. Lane and I flew from Newark to Tel Aviv, and the the majority of our plane was full of Jewish men from that area that were flying to Jerusalem. There was one young man that used the restroom near uh, where we were sitting repeatedly. um, Repeatedly. (laughs) And uh, Lane and I noticed the curly hairs that were on the side of his temple. Now, we understood what those were. We understood that Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 27 says, You shall not round off the side growth of your heads nor harm the edge of your beard. And so for Jewish men not to mess that up, the Talmud states that a Jewish man should never cut his hair between his temple and the top of his ear. So therefore it grows long and they curl it and that's the way it is. We understood that, but we wanted to see what he understood. So we enter into this conversation of this Jewish dad, curly locks on the side of his head, the father of six girls, ages 6 to 16. I put him on my prayer list immediately right there. Amen. <laughs> Lane asked him the question, tell me about those locks of hair. He said, it's my religion. She said, she said yes, sir, I understand that, but... But, but why do you wear your hair that way? He said, I'm Jewish. She said, sir, I, I understand that. You're, you're Jewish and, and your, your religion is Judaism. But why are you wearing the locks of hair on the side of your head? And all he could say was, it's my religion. He could not articulate a biblical reason why he was wearing the hair the way that he was wearing that. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. When we arrived in Tel Aviv, we we took the Israeli version of Uber from the airport to the hotel and we met another Jewish young man. He was driving the car and... He grew up in Israel. From there, so I began to engage him about his faith. He said, "That's easy. I'm an atheist." Uh, he, he said, I, "I grew up here, and in school, uh, we were taught, you know, the Bible." And I said, "Oh, so so the Torah?" He goes, "What's the Torah?" I, I said, "The Pentateuch." What do you mean, the Pentateuch? The law of Moses. And what I began to realize was they never taught anything from the Bible. They taught the Talmud. And the Talmud is a commentary about the Bible that was written 1,700 years earlier. And the Talmud says, don't cut your hair. But it mentions nothing about the book of Leviticus. So therefore, it's just a practice and a religion. And he said, I don't need religion in my life because it doesn't change people. I don't believe in anything. When he approached Jerusalem he saw the city and wept over it. This is our tourist God Sa'ev. In the Hebrew language the word Sa'ev means wolf. He's very proud that his name is Wolf. Sa'ev was a junior officer in the tank brigade in the Six-Day War in 1967. He loves Israel He's as patriotic. You cut me and I bleed red, white, and blue. You cut him and he he bleeds baby blue and white. And I tell you what, he knows more of the Old Testament and the New Testament than anybody that's sitting here today. One night at supper, we sat by each other. So I engaged him about his spiritual life and his response was, I'm Jewish. I said, Sev, you've lived here all your life and you're a tour guide now, right? And he said, yes, I've been one for 27 years. I said, Sev, you take all of us Christians to all of these sites and, and you connect all of them to the Bible. He's been traveling with the, with the pastor that we went with for over 20 years and has been his personal guide for 20 years, taking him to all of these locations that the Bible talks about, connecting the Old Testament prophecy to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. I said, Joseph, when we stand there on the Mount of Olives and, and we read Zechariah chapter nine, don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He said, no, I'm Jewish. He said, that's the problem with you Christians. You're always trying to convert us and we just wanna be left alone. We want our religion And be allowed to worship the way that we choose. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. When he approached Jerusalem. He saw the city. And wept over it. Today is Palm Sunday, the first day of Passion Week, and there's no doubt in my mind, when you came here this morning, you expected me to stand before you and read. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Woo! That's not what we're going to talk about today. And I hope you understand why when we finish our time together. This Palm Sunday, as I stand before you, with those conversations etched in my mind, standing there on the Mount of Olives in possibly the same proximity, Of where Jesus Christ himself sat on the donkey colt. The only words I can hear. Is when he approached Jerusalem. He saw the city. And he wept over it. Take your Bibles now with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 10. We're going to use what I just shared with you as the backdrop. Backdrop. For what I want us to get out of our time together this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10 and we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. And in this passage, I want you to notice with me how that Paul had the same burden for his countrymen. He was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. I'm going to want you to notice with me the same burden that Paul had for his unsaved countrymen that Jesus Christ had for the same. It begins in Romans chapter 10 and verse one, where Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire. Now, when someone comes to you and they say, hey, I want to share with you my heart's desire. What they're saying is, I want to share with you what makes me tick. I want to share with you that one thing that means more to me than any other one single thing in all of my life. Paul says, brethren, my heart's desire is not to be famous or wealthy. Brethren, my heart's desire is not to be admired and respected. It's not to be successful in the realms of sports. It's not to be doing something that achieves the praises of man. He says, brethren... My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for my fellow countrymen, is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. The matter of fact, they have such a zeal that they cut their hair in a certain way. They have such a zeal for God that they go to the wailing wall daily to lament the fact that they do not have a temple to worship at and they're calling out to God for the restoration of the temple. They have such a zeal for God that every place that they go, they put phylacteries on the top of their head so that the word of God will go before them in everything that they do. They have such a zeal for God that they would not dare be ceremonially unclean, that their hands would be dirty before that they touched anything in their religious practices. They have such a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Jesus, standing on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking down over Jerusalem, he wept for his countrymen that were not going to experience eternal life. They were rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting the way, the truth, and the life. Here in Romans chapter 10, Paul, the one that had lived as a Pharisee, the one that understood the religion that they were zealous about, so much so that he martyred other Christians for their faith in Christ. But now who understands the way, the truth, and the life because of his interaction with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He weeps, he laments, he is burdened for all of his countrymen that do not have a personal relationship With Jesus Christ. So that begs for the question to be asked What about you? When is the last time that you wept for the soul of another person? When is the last time that you looking over the state of affairs in our country. You were heartbroken for those who are blinded and do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That you fell on your face and you wept before God. That they would come into a relationship with him before it was too late. We as Southern Baptists are by far the most evangelical. The most well-trained group of christians in all of the world with these pictures etched flesh in my, my my mind i couldn't help but get back to to home and and to get into my computer and to do a little bit re, of research and the, the the most the most current research that i could find was from was from 2021 and in 2021 Convention-wide, all of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention in the country, we baptized 154,700 people who made their profession in Jesus Christ. That is an amazing number, 154,000 people that are going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But then I dug a little bit deeper. And on the surface, I thought, wow, okay, we're doing something. And then I realized, how many Southern Baptist churches are there in America? And I've divided that into that number. And that means that every Southern Baptist church in America saw three people baptized in 2021. Now, praise God, we're above that. In 2021, we didn't see three people baptized. We saw... 42 people baptized. If we had 42 people baptized and the average was three per congregation, what does that tell us? There were some churches that didn't see anybody baptized. When I took the number of the Southern Baptist Convention, the number of churches with 157,000 baptisms, that means that 1% Of every Christian that is a member of a Southern Baptist Church, 1% of them led a person to Christ in 2021. Not us. We have a goal at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. In 2023, we're going to see 60 people profess their faith in Jesus Christ, which means not 1% of our membership, but 6% of our membership this year is going to lead a person to faith in Jesus Christ. We're above average. Amen. Amen. Why is that number not 100%? Why is our expectation not that every single born again follower believer of Jesus Christ? Why is our expectation not that every one of us in one year's time would be so burdened for a coworker? Would be so burdened for a fellow student. Would be so burdened for that person that we meet in the park playing with our kids. Why is it that we accept that we are not expecting all of our people to be so burdened for other people. That all of us would not bring someone into the kingdom of God this year. You asked for it. What's going to be the greatest impact that has on you and your trip, Pastor? And I'm sharing it with you this morning. This morning on this Palm Sunday, I want us to concentrate for a few minutes on three reasons we don't weep for souls. Like Jesus did and like Paul did. Three reasons. Very simple, very straightforward. But the three best reasons why I could think of that we're not reaching more. You see, I don't pastor the Southern Baptist Convention. I pastor Oak Ridge Baptist Church. And my concern is what we do as a church family. And why is our expectation of each other not that we reach more than 6% of people this year for the kingdom of God? The first reason is simply disobedience. It's just disobedience. Andrew Murray was a South African writer, a teacher, a Christian pastor in the 1800s. He once was quoted as saying, you are a soul winner or you are a backslider. And the minute that that word backslider it leaves my mouth, immediately some of you out there are thinking, whoa, Pastor Galen, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And I agree with you. Many of you do not have the gift of evangelism. But sharing Christ with other people is not a spiritual gift. It is a commandment by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Witnessing is a commission given by Jesus on top of that Mount of Olives before he ascended into heaven. And that commission was given to every believer, to every member of Oak Ridge Baptist Church, to every deacon to every ABF leader, to every student, to every staff member, and to your pastor to go out into this world and to reach other people for Jesus Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. Can I summarize this passage of Scripture for you? I'm going to anyway, whether you say yes. But can I? Yes. You know, what? I can do it in three words. Abide, grow, and go. What's our mission statement say that we're going to do as an action? If we don't do it, we're simply being disobedient. The second reason why that we don't have... The heart that Paul and Jesus had is because of dissipation. I don't even sure that I know what that word means, but it started with a D like point 0.1, so I had to use it. Amen? It's called alliteration. That's not true. I know what this word means. In the Bible, this word is used to describe intemperate living or being excessively drunk but really it means engaging in acts of self-indulgent. And I chose this word intentionally because I believe that that summarizes many members of Oak Ridge Baptist Church. We are dissipating today. We are excessively drunk on church. That attitude goes something like this. I will get dissipated. I will get excessively drunk on church. And I will allow the pastor and the staff to go tell somebody else about Jesus Christ. We get so inebriated on our faithful weekly attendance. Are we a proponent of faithful weekly attendance at Oak Ridge Baptist Church? Absolutely that we are. We want everybody to come to worship, and have those that come to worship, we want 90% to come back or, or to co- go to an ABF class. Of those that go to an ABF class, we have a goal that 75% of them will come back on Sunday night and participate in ORBC University. Do we think it's important to, faith, to be faithful in our attendance to God? Yes, the book of Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together, as is the habit of some, especially... As you see coming the day that he's going to be standing on the top of the Mount of Olives. Fulfilling Zechariah chapter 14. And we're closer than we've ever been. We get so inebriated on being able to quote the yearly focal passage, and we celebrate that at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Every week, we have somebody come on this stage, they quote the passage, and we clap for them, and we hoop and holler for them, and we are so blessed that they've taken the challenge. It is a good thing. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. But when we get so inebriated in coming to church and memorizing a passage of scripture, but not taking what we learn out into this community, then we are simply being a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word. And we are being a fake in our fellowship of Jesus Christ. That's what scripture tells us. And the only way we don't do that is by being disobedient to the teaching of God. To being dissipated, drunk on religion rather than on that relationship with Jesus Christ. The third reason that I could think of, the the, the, the final reason, and it's probably the reason that makes the most sense, is simply most of us just do not have a desire to share Jesus with anybody. We simply do not have the desire. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire. My desire and my prayer to God for my unsaved countrymen is for their salvation. Paul says, I'm burdened, I'm consumed by the thought of somebody going to hell. So how can we develop that if we understand it, if we get it, if that's what we want in our life, we we, we, want to make that transition to, I want to have that same fervency for unsaved people that Paul and Jesus had. How can I get that pastor? I hear you this morning. It's burning in my heart. I just don't know what to do. I want to give you the steps to begin that process of having a heart for the unlost the way that Paul and Jesus did this Palm Sunday. Step number one. Is I must develop a genuine burden for the lost, a genuine burden. What does the world say they want today? We want people to be genuine. We want you. We just want you to be genuine. What was that? What was that Uber driver telling me in Israel? I'm tired of the fakeness. I'm tired of these people going through the motion and not impacting their life and changing them. I, I just, I just, I just want genuine people. That's all I'm asking for. The reason I don't go to church anymore is because it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. They go out in the world and do what they want to do. And then they invite me to come to church and they act different in church than they act out in the world. That's what Dr. Hancey said last week. I went to camp and finally the God got a hold of me and said, I'm going to be the same no matter where that you see me. I have to develop this genuineness for the lost. See, early in Romans chapter 9, flip over there very quickly with me. Romans chapter 9, Paul wrote these words. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. He's kind of put his hand on the Bible and says, so help me God. He says here, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He said, what I think about myself and who I am is validated by what the Holy Spirit thinks about me and what he says about me. The Holy Spirit testifies that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accused, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I don't believe that there's one person here this morning that would say, man, we hope people go to hell. I don't believe there's one person here today, if you understand what hell is, that you would ever look at somebody and say, why don't you just go to hell? I I don't believe that. But as I talk about this idea of witnessing and sharing with others, what is your conscience saying this morning? What is the the very core of of yourself saying? Is it saying, I don't do that. I can't do that. I won't do that. That's somebody else's job, not mine. You see, what your conscience is saying right now is revealing how much you would weep for the soul of another. As we kind of think through this, I can't help but think about Dr. Roland Level in his book, Evangelism, Christ's Imperative Commission. He gives four soul searching questions to help us ascertain how genuine our heart is for souls. Number one, how deeply do I care for the lost? Number two, how sincere is my prayer for the lost? Number three, how much of Christ do I share with the lost? And number four, how far will I dare go for the lost? After asking this question, she says, The lack of compassion for souls is the greatest tragedy of Christians and of churches throughout the world. Number one, I have to develop a genuine burden for the lost. Number two, I have to develop a substantial burden for the lost. Paul says there in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. There's only two times that Jesus wept during his earthly ministry that's recorded for us in the Bible. Once is when he heard of Lazarus' death. And two is when he stood on the top of Mount Olives and he looked down over Jerusalem. And he understood the number of people that would go to hell because they didn't understand who he was. John Knox says, give me Scotland or else I die. Henry Martin said, let me burn out in India for God. That's the attitude that gets God's attention. Every Christian, every church that has a genuine heart for God, a substantial burden for lost, for a substantial burden for lost, then they will develop a continual burden for the lost. Look at verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing. I have continual grief in my heart. Greatest impact must trip had? It's the sheer lostness of the world in which we live. People aren't just lost in Israel, they're lost in Rome, too. This is our tour guide in Rome. Uh, His name is Fabio. This is Fabio from Italy. I would like to have that name, right? You know? Uh, Academically trained archaeologist. Goes on digs all over the country. The dude was on fire for archaeology. He could tell us everything about things, including he probably knows more of the New Testament than anyone sitting here today. Because it's a great history book for him. Fabio, tell me about your faith. Well, I'm a Roman Catholic. Well, I'm not a practicing Roman Catholic. I only go on Easter and Christmas. Okay, I get that. But what about Jesus? I'm a Roman Catholic. Fabio, what does that mean? I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a Roman Catholic. It's my religion. Fabio, we're standing at the Colosseum. Nero, you just told me how that Nero persecuted the Christians by... By, by impaling them and lighting them on fire to probably light the Hippodrome so that they could have the chariot races like Ben-Hur. That's what you just said. Why were they willing to do that? I'm a Roman Catholic. I don't know. We live in Texas. We don't get that. Here's what we get in Texas. I'm a Christian. What do you mean you're a Christian? Well, I'm a Christian. My, my parents went to church all my life. My, my, my father was a, was a Baptist deacon. I'm a Christian. But are they going to heaven? Or are they going to hell? You see, it doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist. It doesn't matter if you're from Rome. It doesn't matter if you're from Texas. All that matters is whether or not you've confessed Jesus Christ as the Messiah the savior of the world because indeed he is the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world Amen. and you and i have neighbors you and i have friends you and i have coworkers you and i have family members that we don't weep for their soul who are you weeping for today There's two actions that I'm going to ask you to take this morning. Number one, that person that you're weeping for is on your heart and mind right now. They just popped up. As we've been going through this, that person, the Holy Spirit, brought to your mind. And I want to ask you to invite them to Oak Ridge Baptist Church next Sunday for one of our Easter services. Pastor, hang on just a second. My friend lives in Tennessee. Fly them in and bring them to church next Sunday morning. You remember the question? How far are you willing to go for the eternal life of someone else? I promise you next Sunday morning, they're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could they turn you down? Hey, friend, I love you so much. I care for your eternal destiny so much. I'm sending you a plane ticket to come go to church with me at Oak Ridge Baptist Church next Sunday morning. What if they turn you down? Then all you've done is what God asks you to do. And he finds you faithful for doing that. Secondly, as the praise team comes, the student band comes out. We're about to receive our annual mission offering. We've heard about it for the last several weeks. As you came in today, there was a mission offering, an envelope that was given to you. Very rarely do I stand in front of you and I say, I need you to give today. Today, I need you to give. Every penny that's given in this offering right now Designated for our annual mission offering, it goes to TIBA, it goes to our state convention, it goes to the, the to NAM North American Mission Board, and it goes to the International Mission Board. Every penny that comes together cooperatively by all of our Southern Baptist churches is put into the hand of Southern Baptist missionaries, over five thousand of them around the world, that are weeping for the souls of those that are in their ministry area to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have the privilege today to partner with them through our financial gift to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ farther than we ever could do by ourselves. And I'm asking every member of Oak Ridge Baptist Church to give sacrificially to what God would have you to do today. So as we have our final time of worship this morning, our ushers are going to be passing the plates. You may like to do online giving through texting or through through my ORBC, however you want to do that. Right now, we want all of our membership to participate in that important offering so that we can have the greatest end pouring that we've ever had for the proclamation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then we'll receive the offerings as we worship together. Father, we love you today and we thank you for the blessings that you've given us. We thank you for the ways that you have poured things into our life that we just cannot even imagine. And as we reflect on that, Lord, I pray today that we will be gracious and that we'll be generous and that we'll be open to what we give to this very special offering right now. Thank you for your word and the privilege that we have to study it. And I pray that it'll motivate us to share your love with all those that we come in contact with. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.